Hello, I'm Kerry Lunigan. Welcome to The Weekly Grill, brought to you by Beef Central and Alenco Animal Health. Our guest this week has a job often called one of the toughest jobs in the Australian red meat industry. He's boss of Meat and Livestock Australia, Jason Strong. Welcome. You're on The Grill. Hi, Kerry. Good to have a chat to you. Now, did you ever, in all your years in this business, ever think cattle prices would get to their current level? No. No, I didn't, Kerry. And um, uh, anybody who knows me reasonably well knows that I'm absolutely the glass half full guy. And um, I was thinking 900 was going to be pretty exciting. And we, we blew past that. Like, it, it wasn't even a, a problem, didn't we? So, no, I really didn't. But but when we think about it, you know, there's some, some fantastic things that have been driving it. So it's, it's great news for the industry. Yes, I know when the rain emerged, there were some good signs shoots there, weren't they? Then the rain on top of that, and, and it's gone like a rocket ever since. It really has, and I think it's it's really interesting if we go back, you know, three years or four years, so 2018, 19 particularly, and prices weren't fantastic because we're in you know, the worst two years of drought collectively across the country that we've we've ever seen, but, but all our prices were, you know, at or above five-year averages for, for all commodities. And, and so when you go back, I think that was that sort of 17, 18, 19 period was really the start of it. And, and I think what it reflects is is the um, you know, the benefit of the investments that the industry, the whole industry, has made in in setting ourselves up over the last you know, 20 or 30 years. And it's focusing on consistently producing a high-quality product and getting that high-quality product to high-value markets. So we've got these free trade agreements, we've got access to good markets and great customers. And our industry and our supply chains, which have become really quite sophisticated, have done a fantastic job of getting connected between quality product to quality markets to quality consumers and a few of these supply and demand drivers get in behind it and and we really see the benefit of those investments. And someone saw something a few years back, Jason, because those property prices which started to boom a couple of years ago, and everyone thought they were crazy. They look pretty cheap now, don't they? The prices they paid then. They really do. They really do, don't they? And and I think that's one of the the challenges for us at the moment is how do we how do we plan and manage in the new environment? And and, and one of the things I think is getting as an industry, you know, getting comfortable with our success. You know, stop being surprised that. Things are going well, and, and one of the key reasons they're going well because the industry collectively has has really invested in, and executed on on being better and being connected and and producing this high quality, high value product. So, so we look at prices that go up or have gone up a lot, and historically we've seen that be quite volatile. Where there's a, a lot of you know, really practical, you know, sensible commercial drivers behind those now. So. So this reset about um, what's what's fair value, what's good value, what's you know what's paying overs. Uh, I think that's a real reset for us. Your um, just published state of the industry report reflects the uh, current optimism about the red meat business. Uh, the stars appear to be aligning. Uh, weather, prices, and despite some hiccups, uh, exports. Uh, China. China's an interesting question still. China remains a bit of a hiccup, but it doesn't seem to be. Missed as much as one might have thought when it first pulled the pin on many Australian markets. Yeah, it's a good point, Kerry. And I think our our industry, particularly our exporters, have done a, a fantastic job in the way that they've engaged with the 
the China trade. And we know that the Chinese consumers, um, the ones that you know, buy, have bought our product, uh, have uh, developed a, a taste and a commitment to it. And we know that they recognise its, its value and, and quality. And the, the trade in China, you know, the importers have built good relationships with our, our exporters. And I, and I think what's happened in the last you know, two years particularly, while it's been pretty volatile, is, is that trade relationship is, is incredibly strong. So the, the political challenge is very challenging and, <laughs> and some of the reporting is challenging as well. But, but that, that trade relationship is, is really strong and, and our, our industry supply chain has done a really good job of just uh, keeping their head down and and keeping the business flowing. So yes, it's been a hiccup, but it's still you know, one of our number of you know, top four markets. So it's uh, still a very important market to us. Jason, most of the headlines at the moment, at least, focus on beef. But uh, reading that report, there's a a lot of fears in the sheep meat market as well. Uh, and a headline act for sheep meat at the moment is the emergence of the Australian white breed. Is this a is this the future of the sheep meat industry? Do you think? Uh, I don't know. I, you talk. You talk about overs. You know, some of the prices for those rams are, are, uh, are yeah, going to put some pressure on thousand dollars. It might be called overs. Yes. Yeah, well, one hundred and sixty-five. You know, it's, yes. um, but but what we are seeing is we're seeing you know this increase in uh, value for sheep meat, and we're seeing. A, um, a very consistent demand for it. We're seeing our exports be really strong for sheep meat, and um, I think what we've we've seen, particularly with the the shedders or the you know the sheep breeds, the meat sheep breeds that are uh, have a, a bit easier to manage. I think there's there's probably some more flexibility in some of the the production, and but it's more than that because we've still got you know the the other more traditional meat breeds doing incredibly well. Too, but that gives us some some versatility and some options. But I think what we are also seeing in sheep, the same as in cattle, is the the sophistication of the supply chain. So the connection of um, you know, people's breeding plans and goals connecting to a a um, customer to a market, so they're you know, producing more consistent market specified product, uh, which they're seeing the value for come through. So the the value of you know, the three or four thousand dollar flock ram is is reflecting the two or three hundred dollar lamb prices. So I think we're we're seeing a very similar thing in the the sheep meat sector where um, where you know, we're getting this demand from the sophistication of the supply chain, which is flowing back through the production system. Yeah, and there's still big big markets for for mutton and sheep meat uh, around the world, aren't there? I mean, it's just extraordinary where this demand is emerging from. It, it really is, and and some of those are, are countries which are, have a high proportion of sheep meat uh, as their part of their diet, and and others are, are markets like the the US where it's a, a much smaller component of the diet, but the the acceptance of it as uh, as a not common but um, you know known uh, known product or known protein purchase is certainly increasing, and to see. Uh, the performance of Australian sheep meat at, at retail and some of those supermarkets where uh, they there's not a lot of volume, but it's consistent. Not a lot of volume purport, you know, as a proportion of everything they sell, but it's quite material for for us. And uh, but the prices are fantastic. So um, so we've got these two 
sort of these, these big two areas that we're seeing growth in where it's a high value, smaller percentage of the protein consumption and then you know, where there's a high demand as a, as a much larger proportion of the consumption in other markets. So it's, it's really positive in the sheep export market. I want to get on to research and development, but you're talking about prices and demand, etc. When prices are high, I've found that producers don't complain as much. What's your complaint box like at the moment? Is it empty most days? It's not empty, um, but they're probably about different things. And one of the, you know, <laughs> that's one of the nice things. It's one of the challenging things about being somewhere like MLA is that you know people always want us to be better. It doesn't matter how things are going; they want us to be better, and and that's okay. You know, we we should be always striving to be better as well. And sometimes we'd like them to be nicer and a bit more respectful about the way they say that. But um, we're quite okay with with um, you know, people wanting us to be better and, and keeping pressure on us as the, you know, the industry support you know, service organisation to, to be better and, and, the, and carry that. I mean, that's, just, that's just part of uh, this type of role. You know, we have um, fantastic opportunity to help and support the industry um, and sometimes to do that better than others. And, but there's also a, you know, there's plenty of expectation uh, about what we might be able to do and there's also um, plenty of people happy to, to tell us that we're not doing so well either, and well, that's okay. That's just part of it. So when the grass is going, when the grass is going, it must be it must be much easier for you now. MLA's AGM is coming up. How is the uh, interested in this? How has the low cattle call over the past year impacted on MLA's levy income streams? It's been interesting. So, of course, the transaction levies down because of low cattle kill. But they're still probably not down as much as what you might think because cattle still transacted multiple times. The the interesting part though is a, a big component of of our funding comes from the uh, the matched government R and D dollars, which are, are driven by the the gross value of production, uh, which which keeps going up. So even though we've got lower uh, herd and flock numbers, so the actual levy Income is down considerably. The uh, the matching dollars coming from the government uh, continue to go up as the value of the industry uh, continues to, to stay up as well with the increased prices. So so there's a bit of a trade off. And the, the other thing we are doing, yeah, we are doing carrier courses is um, using uh, reserves to keep our our budget consistent, which is you know, why we've got them, and and that's allowing us to to maintain the, the same level of spend as we've got a lower. Yeah, the reserves, uh, I guess, are, are very important for that. A, a couple of years back, MLA launched a program called uh, Fewer, Bigger, Bolder. Essentially, yep. it was um, putting more resources into fewer projects. Has this manifested itself in any particular form? Or? It is. It has. It's still a work in progress. You know, it's corralling. You know, we're still trying to corral you know, a lot of, you know, smaller programs of work back to these big focus areas, but we're definitely bringing some of that to life. And there's some really good examples, like the NB2 program, so the Northern Business Two program, which is it's been a, a progression as we've uh, we've looked at individual projects and looked at projects, looked at collaborative work, looked at lining people up on the same towards the same goals to to setting. Our goals for our Northern Australia research investment, and and pointing all of our activities to that, and and you know, it's certainly one of the best examples we've got of 
um, of, of how we can corral uh, collective investment in in a very specific area that we work to to try and achieve uh, a, a smaller number of specific goals. So how do we get more cows in calf? How do we get more cars on the ground? How do we keep them alive and, and get them heavier as as weaners? And and I'm not trying to oversimplify it. We we need to have you know, really simple, tangible benefits and and you now we, we we do we move the needle on those three or four things only a couple of percent in northern Australia and it, tend, and it increases the value of the industry in north in the north tens of millions of dollars a year so focusing on those things and being able to demonstrate uh, delivery and and use of them is really important. Time for a quick break. We'll be back in a moment after this brief message from our sponsors, Alenco Animal Health. Akatak Duo Star from Alanco provides knockdown and residual control of cattle ticks and ivermectin sensitive parasites. Applied early in the season, Akatak Duo Star reduces the buildup of the tick population and helps to prolong the life of effective chemistry. Give ticks and worms the flick with Akatak Duo Star. Always read and follow the label directions and ensure good agricultural practice for optimal parasite control. We're back on the grill with Jason Strong. He's the boss of Meat and Livestock Australia. Senator uh, Susan MacDonald, who has an interest in cattle, as you know, made the point that if we stop cattle industry research and focus just on communicating the knowledge that has emerged from past research, we would have years of information to impact to producers. Is that a fair comment? It is, yeah, it is. Um uh, and but we've got to be able to do both, of course. But but yes, it is a fair comment. You know, there's a there's a lot that we know uh, that we haven't fully exploited, and I use the word exploited on purpose because that's that's what we should be doing. You know, we should we're producing stuff with socialised funds. We're producing information that should be um, absolutely exploited by you know, our stakeholders to to their absolute benefit. And so we've got to think about the big new sexy things of course but um, there's also applying the things we already know so we're just this week we're um, launching a, a quite a big promotion on phosphorus supplementation now I'm sure there's plenty of people that would hear me say that and say why on earth would you do that well we're doing that because the the uptake the consistent use of phosphorus supplementation in phosphorus deficient areas is really quite low and, and quite inconsistent um, but there's a heap of research which says in this environment, with this information, supplementing phosphorus uh, can give you a, a five to one return on that investment. So for every buck that you put into your phosphorus supplementation, you get $5 back. Um, but it's not applied or adopted you know, broad scale in the areas that could use it. So, so while we're trying to do this new stuff, which we absolutely have to do, that's part of our responsibility. We've also got to make sure we, uh, you know, we keep our, our, our real focus on you know, the adoption of the things that we already know. I think one of the things that MLA has to do is possibly replace some of those, uh, the rundown of the state ag departments and their extension offices who used to do a lot of that work and now you've got to step in and do it yourself, haven't you? Yeah, it's really difficult getting the information out because the, the structure is different, like you say. There's not the level of support or presence or people or resources that there was before. But we also have different ways of, of getting in touch and communicating as well. So 
um, we're, we're always looking for new ways to, to do that. And, and one of the key things we're pushing really hard on is these you know, demonstration sites. So you know, helping um, bring to life you know, results of research by demonstrating it on, on farm and, and forming uh, networks of producers in uh, similar geographical areas where they can you know, share information and see the demonstration of the use of, of uh, research results. We had a, a really good example in was in southern Australia, a, a sheep program, and it was around uh, temporary um, uh, temporary fencing in, in lambing, so temporary confinement of ewes at lambing, and uh, the increase in ewe um, and lamb survival and uh, the benefits were quite significant on a per hectare basis when you look at the, the return. What 100% of the people that were involved in doing those demonstrations made material practice change as a result of that, and 50% of the people that came along and had a look at it made material practice change as a result of it. So those sort of things are a really good example for us where if, if we can help bring these things to life on farm in practical um, examples that people can see and touch, then there's a much greater chance that they're going to be adopted. The biggest project I would suggest that you're going to be involved in in future years is your carbon neutrality for 2030. Can MLA provide clarity about, is this an aspirational goal or is it still a genuine target? Um, it's definitely an aspirational goal, uh, but I think we know enough already to say that it's doable and it's going to take some investment in research and development um, and it'll take some practice change and adoption to uh, to bring to life, but but absolutely it's, it's doable and uh, I think more importantly, it's one of the, the things that uh, really demonstrates the industry, not only the industry's commitment to solving big problems, but also its ability to, to, to do things practically, which then contribute to that. Because if we're going to be carbon neutral by 2030, um, we've also got to be profitable and productive, and we've also got to have intergenerational sustainability with We've got to leave the environment in better shape. You know, we we can't be just doing something to meet somebody else's need. We know there's community and consumer interest, and it's growing interest in sustainability. It's not a major drive or drag at a shopping level yet. Um, at some stage, it, it will be, but it's not at the moment. But we know there's this elevated level of interest in sustainability and our impact on the environment, and uh, we can you know we can demonstrate as an industry already, you know, the, the good practices that we have, which um, you know, supports our credentials and and we, you know, we're we prepared to you know, invest in the things that then get us on the path to being carbon neutral by 2030. I think uh, graziers across Australia would be interested in how is it going to happen in terms especially of vegetation management? Is, is that one of the absolute focuses of MLA's research or thoughts at the moment? So, so yes, it is, and I say that very cautiously because um, I think it's also important to point out what's what's out as far as we're concerned. So, so offsets aren't something that uh, you know we're interested in seeing as a component of the CN30 target, and we're also not interested in um, any you know, land use change or vegetation management, which is detrimental to production. Uh, and 
this is one of these classic cases is we have to be able to walk and chew gum you know, where um, we've, we, we know that we can be productive um, cattle and sheep you know, red meat producers and still be um, really proactive and positive as far as our engagement with the environment, leave the environment in better shape and, and be carbon neutral. You know, that, that's got to be the, the target. So looking at things like productivity and that being a, uh, a key part of the driver is really, really important. And there's some great examples already. So using genetics to increase the production and decrease the age of turnoff has an immediate impact on the total uh, greenhouse gas emissions that are produced. But we're also seeing some, some really promising uh, results and, and good information coming forward around things like soil carbon sequestration and uh, using uh, fast-growing pastures, for example, to have to increase productivity but also increase the carbon levels in soils. And, and, and it's one of those really good examples because increasing carbon level in your soils also increases your water holding capacity. So even before we start having a conversation about Soil carbon sequestration, you know, we're increasing our available water utilisation and the productivity of our country because we increase the carbon organic matter in the soil. And those are the sorts of things that we've got to be really interested in. How do we, how do we do things which are increasing productivity, increasing our profitability and also you know, getting us on the path to CMD. I suspect it's going to be on the agenda for many, many years to come. Now the levy, I know, I know you can't or you shouldn't offer possibly an opinion on the levy. You can if you want to, mind you. But put it this way: Are current funding levels for MLA sufficient to remain competitive against an avalanche of non-meat proteins and the publicity they are getting? <laughs> this is one of those areas, isn't it, where you you know there's going to be a challenge, but um, well, it's going to be a challenge to navigate. But just short, short answer to your question. Is, is no, um, they're, they're not to, to do the things you were just talking about. You know, how do we actually combat all of those things? But changing our funding levels isn't also isn't the solution. Um, now, this, these are the sorts of things that we've got to collectively attack, and MLA absolutely has a very important role to play in the information that's available and the promotion that we do and the support that we provide others to have a voice to, to defend and, and promote the industry. So... Um, we, we, we've got to be better as an industry at, at collectively pointing forward and collectively having, you know, a, a strong view and a strong support and strong defence of our of our industry and the the size of the industry and the way the industry's grown. You know, there's there's probably time to be having a discussion about how we fund things like research and development and, and marketing and. Um, I'm sure others, or well, I know others, are interested in in doing that. From from our point of view, we you know, we we will do the absolute best we possibly can with whatever budget we have, um, but also we'll look at ways to to leverage that as well. So, you know, our our budget at the moment is about you know, three times the size of the levy income that we get. If people think about you know, we need more money to in the socialised pot to do things for the industry, one way is levies, but the other way is is how do we actually leverage other funds as well? And 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 we we do a lot of that now. We're very focused on how we can do more of that. Now I want to talk about uh, counterfeit meat, as I prefer to call it. Uh, I hear all these claims, uh, a lot of material about about extraordinary health and environmental claims for counterfeit meat. 
that is plant-based proteins. What about all these claims and why is there not a concerted campaign at the broader community explaining why those claims are far from reality and certainly far from the truth? It's a real challenge, isn't it? Because because they are, they are a lot of those claims are far from reality and far from the truth, and um, and we're, you know, we're doing a lot, a lot in that space. We need to do more, and we're very focused on doing more, um, and and very directly. So we've always done a lot in the nutrition area, and it's been very uh, technical and really really high quality work, high quality information targeted at professionals and it's been very effective in that um, in that space around nutrition and the, and the value of, of red meat as part of a balanced diet. So much of what we're seeing, particularly with these you know, plant-based proteins and manufactured foods, is uh, so much of their you know, promotional positioning is just being driven by commentary and opinion. It's not backed up by facts. It's not backed up by, like you say, you know, the verifiable claims, but so much of it is just commentary and opinion. And uh, as an as organisation and as an industry, uh, we've, we've got to be better at getting in front of that. So, so we're investing in a bunch of resources. So things like the Red Meat Brain Facts, which we launched at Beef Australia, was the start of that as a sustainability report. We've done a bunch of um, producer you know, videos and information that gone on to social media and have been shared quite widely around our sustainability credentials that have now started doing. Uh, we've released a number of animations around plant-based proteins just recently, but also around methane production, and, and trying to progressively um, build this weight of, of resource and material that all of us can use. So we can promote those things, we can put them out on social media, we can do campaigns with them, but when you get out in some of that traffic, in some ways we're only one one voice. So, so part of what we're also really conscious of is how do we best arm and prepare all of our stakeholders as well. Um, and the latest thing we're doing with that is the October version of Feedback magazine is actually going to be um, wholly focused on um, more positively positioning red meat, and it's going to include case studies and nutritional information, but also social media tips and tools, you know, how do we how do we actually share our story better, how do we actually get our message out there to people. Just a couple of quickies to finish. Threats and opportunities. Were well, any major threats that you could see emerging or possibly emerging? I mean, is uh, collapse in world trade apart from something like that? <laughs> I think we've shown the last couple of years, Kerry, how incredibly resilient our sector is, which yes, is fantastic. Indeed. So yeah. I think we and and we've managed so many of those geopolitical challenges incredibly well. I reckon our biggest challenges are in this community and consumer space. You know, people denigrating us, maligning us and, and consumers and the community forming a view um, that isn't true or isn't right, but is ultimately detrimental yes, to, uh, I, to our I, position. I think you're right there. I think the and the average person in the beef industry or the red meat industry says you uh, would love to see MLA get on the front foot more and more now. Now, opportunities, I've got to ask this, although I think I know the answer. The UK Free Trade Agreement, it's just an agreement, something on paper. Has anything happened yet or is anything about to happen? Any opportunities so, for further exports to the to the UK? Uh, it's going to be huge, Kerry. Um, so the, the negotiations are around the text are underway at the moment. So 
Um, it gets, in theory, it gets signed in the next few months. Um, and if that goes ahead, then it's likely to come into force um, you know, six or 12 months after that. So if everything flows as you'd expect it might flow, it's you know, sort of middle of next year is probably the earliest time. But the starting position of that agreement is, is more access than the biggest year we've had to Europe in the last 50 years. Evans. That's the starting point. And over oh. 10 years, we actually get to full liberalisation. So it's a, it's huge. So it's a fantastic opportunity. Culturally aligned population, uh, high disposable income, big red meat eaters. So it's a huge opportunity for us. Yeah. That, uh, that sounds fantastic. I wouldn't hold your breath waiting for an opportunity to do similar with the European Union, though. I don't think I think they're out the window for a long time to come. But Jason Strong, we've got to end it there. But thank you so much for your time on the grill for Beef Central. No problem, Terry. That's great, Kerry. It's great to have a chat to you. Thanks, mate. And thank you for joining me today. Until next time, I'm Kerry Lonigan, and this is the Weekly Grill, brought to you by Beef Central and our podcast partner, Elenco Animal Health. <laughs>